with you this morning. Um, there's a few new faces here and many familiar faces. Um, I hope you've had a good week and I pray uh, the Lord has been good to you this week. Um, we're going to be in Daniel 2 today and before I read the text I wanted to ask uh, two questions. Who rules the world now and who will rule it in the future? So who rules the world and who rules what now and who will rule it in the future? Some options might be Queen Elizabeth uh, because she owns, or still owns, one-sixth of the, of the entire land surface of the earth. Um, others might look at world superpowers such as China and the United States and Russia and India as dominating forces in world affairs um, and say that these countries are ruling the world. Uh, if you're into hip-hop, you might listen to uh, Nas in his classic Illmatic album, Whose World Is This? The World Is Yours. If you're a fan of Beyonce, uh, if I say who runs the world, <laughs> yeah. the future is female, apparently. In our world, there has been monarchy after monarchy, empire after empire, regime, movements, all in this fight for power and supremacy. Many of these rulers have been tyrannical, evil, man-centered, building empires and kingdoms apart from God. Who really rules the world and where are we headed? In the midst of all the human powers and kingdoms, our passage reveals to us who is really in charge and who is the true and ultimate and final king. Amen? Amen. Um, I'm going to read. Again, we're in Daniel 2, so I'm going to read and then I'm going to pray and we can get straight in. I'll be going from Daniel 2 to the, to the end of the chapter. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king and the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O oh, king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is, is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore... 
Tell me the dream, and I, and, I, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill, him, to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made known the matter to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to, to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the, vision, the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its inheritance was frightening. 
The head of this image was of fine gold, its chests and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone struck the image Sorry, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the interpretation. So this was a dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God, the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. All these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some firmness of the iron shall still be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Very long passage. Let's pray. Uh, our Father in heaven, uh, we give you glory for you are the king and your kingdom is coming. We thank you, Lord, that you have incorporated us into your kingdom. You have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And as we gather, Lord, as your people, as your kingdom uh, gathers 
here in Lewisham and elsewhere throughout London and throughout the world. May your word go forth, uh, soften our hearts to hear uh, and understand your word. Uh, help us to take it unto ourselves and into our lives. Rest upon us, Lord. May your Holy Spirit come and rest upon uh, me as I speak and everyone else as they listen. May I only speak your words. And may we all grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. One of the overarching themes of the whole Bible is the joining of three things. God's presence, um, sorry, God's people in God's land with God's presence. So this is what creation was. Adam and Eve, God's people, in the Garden of Eden, God's land, with God's presence, he walked with them in the cool of the day. The serpent and sin then comes and rips this apart. So now God's people are expelled from God's land and no longer have his presence. And this theme repeats here. God's people are in, in God's land with God's presence. And the king of Babylon raises God's holy city, God's land, to the ground. He destroyed the temple, God's presence, um, and carries off God's people and makes them prisoners of war in his kingdom. God's people with his presence in his land are once again ripped apart. So the story of exile is one of hopelessness. It makes you think, if God is God, why should these things happen? Is God not God? And the Israelites aren't the only people who are to ask this question or who asked this question. Some of us maybe may have been asking this question for the last 18 months. Uh, last week was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I'm sure you have countless reasons in your life and have suffered loss or hurt uh, that cause you to think, God, aren't we your people? Aren't you supposed to be with us? Why are we in a strange land? But among those carried off are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, who are God's people placed not in God's land, but right where he wants them, in a pagan warlord's kingdom. And they resolve to remain faithful because God's presence is with them. So continuing on from Daniel 1 last week, Daniel 2 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful uh, warlord of his time, destroyer of nations, uh, begins struggling with nightmares. This powerful warlord can't sleep. That is such an odd and random thing to happen. But what happens here, and what I think is the fundamental point of this whole chapter, and indeed of the whole Bible, is simply that God is really God, and everything is going his way. God is really God, and everything is going his way. And I want to explore that in two points. The first point is that God reveals future light in present darkness. Looking from verses 1 to 30. The chapter begins with Nebuchadnezzar having a dream, perhaps a recurring dream, uh, that is disturbing to the point of insomnia. He calls on the wise men um, 
who are astrologers when the text says Chaldeans, it's another word for astrologers, um, and sorcerers, those who work deep in the pagan religion. Um, and he asks them to reveal his dream. He gives them a very clear ultimatum. Tell me my dream and what it means, and I'll reward you. If not, I will kill you and burn down your house. But it's an impossible task. No one's ever asked this before, and they are unable to do it. So he motions to kill all the wise men uh, in his own kingdom. And I want to pause here to make the point that Babylon and the world without God is a place of fear and brutality and helplessness and darkness. Babylon is a, is a real place uh, linked to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. They're both in the land of Shinar. Um, but later on in the Bible, it becomes an expression of uh, human pride and rebellion against God and independence from God. It's, it's human beings saying, we don't need God. Um, we rule here and create what is right and wrong. We don't need God to tell us what morals are or what beauty is. I make my life whatever I want it to be. And that is what the world is. That is all out, everything outside of Christ. That is what the world is. And it's the essence of Adam and Eve's sin and the essence of our own sin. It questions God. Did God really say that? Is that really useful? It then excludes God and then rebels against God. This is why in Ephesians 2, uh, Paul says that the devil is the God of this world and that the world is under his kingdom because by trying to be independent of God, we join the devil in rebellion against God. But with that comes a few things that I think we see in, that, in this section. The first thing that comes um, is spiritual darkness that leads to fear and hopelessness. The fear here is, um, is not experienced only by the wise men who are in fear of their life, but also by the king himself, Nebuchadnezzar. He is in fear also. Never mind that he's running a violent, nation-destroying empire. He literally can't sleep and is given him problems. He is in spiritual darkness. The astrologers and the sorcerers, for all their idols and gods and astrology and magic... It does nothing for them. Why? Because they are in spiritual darkness. The world itself is in spiritual darkness. Without God, without an absolute standard, we don't know where we come from, who we are most deeply, and where life and history is going. So because of this, if I'm in spiritual darkness, I, I, I have to make it up. So... I might think I'm unique, and L'Oreal might tell me I'm worth it. <laughs> but without God, fundamentally, I have to make that up. I might try the law of attraction, speak good things into my life and my future. I might try a new age religion with healing crystals and sage cleanses and get my energy and frequency right. I try to find meaning. And 
you know, I want to create a, some sort of connection with the, <laughs> with the ancestors, some sort of connection with the spiritual. But ultimately, without Christ, we have no spiritual insight. We have no real spiritual insight. And if we think we do, it is distorted, man-centered, empty, unsustainable, and incomplete. Our culture always seems like it goes through a, an existential crisis, this struggling with who I am and why I'm here. Because without Christ, life is an existential crisis. It is spiritual darkness. And in that darkness, there is only the failure of human wisdom to tell me what is really going on and fear of the unknown. The second thing I think shows up here is arbitrary brutality that leads to helplessness against evil. Human potential is an amazing thing. You think about the Nokia 2810 and you think about an iPhone. Human potential is an amazing thing, except for the battery maybe. But tainted with sin, that potential always grows ugly and violent. When we don't get what we want, we are not afraid to hurt and kill. Think back to Cain's murder of Abel. Or of Lamech, Cain's great-grandson, who boasts that he killed 70 times more than Cain. He's boasting about it. Or bring your mind to the trail of blood throughout history. Think of the 20th century alone, the First World War, Second World War, Vietnam War, countless civil wars. It, it was the most bloody century that overall killed more than the previous 19 centuries. Think of abortion. At least 40 to 50 million children killed each year, largely because of arbitrary convenience. Think of race wars and those who die at the hands of oppressive regimes because of arbitrary ethnic pride. If we just came by chance and the Big Bang and evolution and we create what is right and wrong, um, poet propaganda says, then there's no need for humanitarian effort because these atrocities aren't wrong. It's just the universe weeding out bad genes. Without God, if there is no right and wrong, if there is no spiritual light to give meaning, in this kind of world that rejects God, what else is there except fear and darkness? But the fear and darkness in the kingdom of this world completely contrasts with Daniel's boldness to speak to the commissioned executioner and organize a time with the king to reveal the impossible. Despite what Nebuchadnezzar was doing, Daniel could go before his true king, not in fear, but in boldness. 
unlike the brutality and lack of safety in the kingdom of this world, God's heart toward his people is to give mercy when his people seek him. And when Nebuchadnezzar asks his people to do the impossible for him, God can, God's people can confidently ask him to do the impossible for them. Nebuchadnezzar's dream is revealed to Daniel and because of the hope contained in it, in the midst of how fast the scene is moving, Daniel stops here at verse 20 to give thanks and praise to God because God is really God and everything is going his way. Verse 20, to him belongs wisdom and might. He knows everything and is not limited by anything. Verse 21, he changes times and seasons. The world as the years go by does not run on an automated system of continuity that keeps itself going. It's not an egg timer. The movement of time itself, the past, the present and the future, our own lives moment by moment are being guided and carried forward by God who is the Lord of all of history. He removes kings and sets up kings. Whoever is in power, the head of governments and kingdoms and nations is only there because God allows them to be for his own good purposes. As Jesus stands before Pilate, he made very clear, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. He didn't pull out his pocket. It was given, it was given to God. It was given to him by God. Even the devil, the God of this world, Martin Luther says, even the devil is God's devil. This does not mean that God endorses any and every leader. God is not the author of evil. Evil does not proceed from him. But power that is in the hand of anyone is from God alone. And to him they will be accountable. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Verse 22, he reveals deep and hidden things. God reveals to his people what cannot be known otherwise. Here in Daniel, it is a human impossibility to tell the king his dream and interpret it. Yet it is revealed by God to Daniel. For us, it is a human impossibility to know God unless he reveals himself. Otherwise, we are creating mere idols. Paul, when speaking about uh, Christ crucified in 1 Corinthians 2 from verse 7 says, But we impart, not an open thing, a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us 
by his spirit. Verse 13. And we impart this, not in words taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. The natural person does not accept the things of God, sorry, the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Our knowledge of the truth of God is not from human wisdom or philosophy, but is sovereignly given by God and is revealed to us essentially in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We know the deep and hidden things of God because he has chosen to show them to us and causes, and causes us to understand. <laughs> he knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. And verse 23 pushes us toward a response of praise and thanks to God. The world does not give praise and thanks to God, and as a result has a darkened heart, according to Romans 1.21. But we must always be in a place of giving praise and thankfulness. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances. Not some, in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Why? Because one, God is sovereign. But this is especially good news, not only because he's sovereign, but because he is faithful and committed to his people. Daniel says here in verse 23, you have given me wisdom and might. He is the only God who deserves worship because he made all and sustains all, but he pays special, particular attention to his people for the good of his people. So God is not only sovereign, but he is faithfully sovereign to his people. What that means for us is that whatever happens, we always have hope because we are never outside of the sovereign, faithful will of God. Daniel and his friends in a pagan warlord's kingdom were not outside of the faithful will of God. And so we give thanks in, our, in all our circumstances because when we face incredibly challenging points in life. Even in this, God is good. His will is being done and he is faithful to us. Psalm 33, 10 to 21, I think sums this up quite nicely. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Skip to verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. So his eye is on everyone. But behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope 
in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. The second point is that God reveals where history is headed. This is from verse 31 to 49, the rest of the text. So we come to the dream and its interpretation. In the dream, Nebuchadnezzar stands before a huge and terrifying uh, um, statue. The the word is, is image, same as statue. And it's a statue of a man. Its head is gold, chest and arms are silver. Its middle and thighs are bronze, its legs are of iron, and its feet are of both iron and clay. A stone strikes the feet of the statue, and the statue is completely pulverized to dust. And the dust is blown away by the wind, so there is absolutely no trace of it. Then the stone that struck the the statue then becomes a huge mountain that fills the whole earth. Daniel interprets the dream and makes clear the statue represents the succession of human kingdoms over time. So some commentators will say that the gold statue represents the Babylonian Empire, the uh, silver represents the Medo-Persian, which came after it, the bronze represents the Greek, which came after that, and then the iron and iron and clay represent the Roman Empire. Something to note is that these kingdoms are represented by materials that are inferior to the previous, but they become stronger and more powerful. But they won't be able to hold together as seen in the iron and in the clay because they they just can't mix. The basic point here is that kingdom after kingdom will grow stronger and more powerful and perhaps more evil and will continue to reign over the world even as divided. But verse 44 is the key verse here. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So this is a public service announcement to the kingdom of man and all that boasts itself against God, that the true king is already in control. He is coming and he will triumph over and destroy every other single kingdom. He will set up an indestructible, invincible kingdom that will never end and can never be defeated. Every other kingdom was succeeded by another kingdom This is the way of the world. A tyrannical kingdom uh, rises up. The people it oppresses uh, revolt. And then that kingdom is then uh, overcome. And then the cycle continues because then that kingdom becomes a a tyrannical kingdom, which then oppresses someone else. That cycle is going to be broken. Every other kingdom is succeeded by another kingdom. His kingdom is forever and has no end. And this stone that shatters the kingdoms is none other than King Jesus himself. 
when he steps onto, onto the, the, the earth, the kingdom of man, in Mark 1.15 and says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus entered the world to establish his kingdom. He was crucified under a kingdom, under the Roman Empire, but was raised from the dead by the sovereign power of God, showing that these kingdoms don't have the final say. And all other earthly kingdoms will bow in complete submission and recognize that he is the only true king. He is the stone that the builders rejected that has become the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone upon which a kingdom that will fill the whole earth and is of universal scope rests upon. And it is the Lord's doing, not invented by human wisdom, not possible by the work of human hands. It is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Psalm 118. God is really God and everything is going his way. This chapter turns our eyes to the distant future and tells us where history is headed. The kingdom of God on full display for all to see. And we have been made part of this kingdom. Colossians 1:13 to 14 tells us he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved, his beloved son, the stone that shatters kingdoms, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This ought to release within us two things. The first thing it ought to release within us is lasting hope. We have lasting hope because someone will put an end to evil and he is strong enough to do it. I think sometimes there are perceptions of the Lord Jesus that lean too heavily on softness and effeminacy or, or effeminate ways of understanding him. But we have to get the balance right. We, we don't neglect the love of Christ and his gentle and lowly heart towards sinners. He so deeply loves us, he sacrificially plunged into the world to rescue us out of the misery of sin. He softly and gently draws near to us on a deeply personal level. But we cannot reduce his love to mere songs and flowers. Think of a husband who wants to protect his wife he could be the most loving husband. But if he's not strong enough to protect her, his love may not be able to extend in such a way that provides the full protection his wife needs. We need a big and comprehensive view of God that says, yes, we need his love, and, not but, and, we need him as our king. When you think of the millennia of human evil that so powerfully 
bullies the world, the evil that runs rampant in our streets, slaughtering of the innocent, destroying God's creation. When we think of the uncontainable, unstoppable powers that work in the world and Satan who is rebelling against God and stands viciously opposed to God, drawing people into his rebellion every day. We realize that these things are incredibly powerful and they need to be not cuddled and sung to. They need to be destroyed and defeated and conquered. And this is what lovingly King Jesus does. This is what he will do. Psalm 143 verse 12 says, And in your steadfast love you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul for I am your servant. He didn't say from your rage or your tyranny, from your steadfast love. We need a big view of God, both inclusive of love and might, to destroy the adversaries of our souls. We need a loving and mighty king, and we have one in Christ Jesus. The second reason for lasting hope is that we have God's promise and his presence. In spite of the headlines that we read that cause us to worry, and feel discouraged and pessimistic. In spite of whatever world governments choose to do when they <laughs> begin overstepping boundaries, or when our society and the government grow increasingly anti-Christian and godless, in spite of when we are tempted to interpret our own lives as hopeless, Even when it looks like we're losing, no matter the national, political condition of our time, we are never outside of the perfect, sovereign, faithful will of God, who works all things for the good of those who love him. And that's all things, not just some things. When the Bible says all things, our minds stop at a certain point. But God's sovereign reach doesn't stop at that point. He works all things for the good of those who love him. Saying God is sovereign is not a careless, thoughtless phrase we say when something bad happens. But it's a wholehearted belief and conviction that God has not left us to the mercy and chaos of existence in this world. And our final fate is not, the hand of, is not in the hands of any government or leader or any circumstance. But in every circumstance, he is in complete control. And his agenda is not a rejection of us, but faithfulness and commitment to us. Not only does he promise that all things are being used for our good, but in addition, he is present with us in all things. When you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil because evil doesn't have the final say because God is with you, walking with you, comforting you, 
desiring your good. And so because of this hope, we, or we hope because we are part of a kingdom that will outlast the world. And because of this, we remain faithful, patiently faithful to God. Um, I, I, I add, this is my second point, <laughs> I add patient to patiently faithful because sometimes it can feel like, yeah, 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 Jesus said he's going to be coming back for the last 2,000 years. <laughs> I don't buy it. Um, and sometimes falling into that belief is very tempting. But here's what Peter says in Second Peter 3, 3 to 12. Knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days of scoff- with, with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the, the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. So this isn't a new argument. The world just, just keeps going. Where's, where's Jesus? For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. It's referring to the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But listen here. But do not Overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will, it will be exposed. Since all, thing, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Christ is the rightful king of this earth, but is not patient in the way that we count patience. His patience is true patience, merciful patience, that wishes for as many as possible to know him. So we must be patient as we wait for him, but also faithful on mission to use our words and our lives contagiously to reveal the mystery of the gospel to our friends and family and those who don't know uh, and those who we don't know who are under the kingdom of darkness. Our lives ought to tell them that there is a better kingdom. The second reason I say patient faithfulness is imperative is because the stone that strikes the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream becomes a stone that then becomes, or is a stone that then becomes a mountain. So there seems to be a gradualness in its becoming a mountain rather than an instantaneousness. 
Jesus highlights this in Mark 4 when he says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that is the smallest of all seeds yet grows to be the largest of all the trees. This is the nature of the kingdom of God. Jesus himself comes as a lowly peasant carpenter with 12 followers and was crucified brutally under one of the most militant and violent empires in history. What influence could he have possibly had on the world? He's so insignificant. But his crucifixion, his seeming smallness, explodes into a faith that has lasted the test of time and the test of rigorous critique and hate and is believed on by billions in the world. This is the nature of the kingdom. This kingdom, the kingdom of God is not reliant on worldly significance or Instagram likes or political endorsement. The Lord chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the weak things of the world to put to, sh to shame the strong. This relates to us because the sovereignty of God as the Lord over all of history ought to be lived not as some big vision, contemplative idea that you have when you feel a bit, you know, a bit deep in your faith. But the sovereignty of God and the direction that history is going, which is toward his kingdom, ought to be an everyday reality that motivates small-time, everyday faithfulness. We live in the present in light of the future. Even when things appear small, like church, for instance. We can begrudge smallness. We want to already be the mountain. We don't want to be a stone. But did you know that the Lord is using this insignificant small gathering to extend the knowledge of his kingdom in London. Despise it not that we have less numbers or less resources. For God can and is using all things for his glory. Despise not the small workings of the Lord. He delights to use small things, foolish things, weak things to put his glory on maximum display we are not called to be big and grand and cool we are called to be faithful because God is big and grand and cool what about your daily life in comparison to eternity or at least all of history this coming Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday can feel very insignificant. They're just a couple of days. But the Lord is gradually building his kingdom, and not instantaneously. He has inaugurated it, but it gradually grows until consummation. When we pray the Lord's Prayer and say, your kingdom come and your will be done, what do you mean? I think there are three things we, we can mean. One, we pray in eagerness 
for the fullness of God's kingdom to come. We look beyond this world and this, and this earthly satanic kingdom that runs it and await the day that Christ will overthrow them and embrace us completely in his loving and saving rule. That's number one. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, number two, we pray that the gospel goes forth daily and that God's kingdom will be extended through the world uh, by the gospel, snatching people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, number three, we pray the kingdom comes and takes rule in our hearts. The attitudes of the kingdom of man that exalt itself against God still exist within us because of our sin. So when you pray, your kingdom come and your will be done, we pray that God's rule comes and dwells within us, that he sits on the throne of our hearts and we give up our rule and the world's rule for his. This seems the most insignificant because it's just our personal lives. It's just our individual daily lives. It's just my, my private business. But our personal lives are not off limits when it comes to the kingdom of God. Our seemingly small personal decisions to be faithful are the means by which God establishes his rule within us and extends his kingdom in the world. So when we say your kingdom come, that is us praying that the king will come and help us, his loyal subjects, to live according to his will, not according to the will of our own desires or the surrounding culture and its customs. God's rule is lived out in us and toward us, sorry, and toward the world when we seek God in prayer for mercy and in our need. It is lived out when we take our cues, not from the world or from our own personal desires, but from the word and be doers of it. Our faithfulness is lived out in the seemingly insignificant and personal decisions we make. God's rule is lived out and toward the world when you, sisters, by God's mercy, decide not to go for an unbelieving man. God's rule is lived out in us and toward the world when you, brothers, by God's mercy, turn away from pornography. God's rule is lived out in us and toward the world when you, mothers, choose not to prioritize career success and raise your children and submit to your husband with joy, not begrudging. God's rule is lived out in us and toward the world when you fathers are not only physically present, but fully present with your wife and with your children, raising them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, loving and serving your family as Christ loved the church. God's rule is lived out in us and toward the world when you children are obedient to your parents and respect them. God's rule is lived out in us and toward the world 
when we as a church live as a hospitable community, present in the communities that we are in, looking for opportunities to preach the gospel, looking for opportunities to do good works that cause us to then preach the gospel and invite those who are in the world of darkness to come in to the kingdom of light. The life of faith is nourished by the knowledge of God. Faithfully, it is faithfully consecrated to God. It finds confidence and hope in the knowledge of God, in the knowledge that God is sovereign and his kingdom is inevitable. And this may make our lives offensive to some people and it may make them come into the kingdom. The world will respond one way or another. Nebuchadnezzar paid homage and worshipped and promoted Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. For you, faithfulness may not turn out so sweetly. It may not mean a promotion. It may mean termination. But faithful, being faithful daily to Christ, especially in our intolerant day, even when there is the fear of being fired or cancelled or ostracized by friends, is essential to faithfulness in this world and trust in the Lord. And whether acceptance and promotion or termination and being ostracized, either way, Christ will be the final Lord and he is with us. He has promised his peace. John 14, 27 says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives peace do I give to you. Let your hearts not be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Christ has overcome the world. So take heart in all circumstances. God is really God. And everything is going his way. Let's pray. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.